Section 7 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jurisprudence by John Salmon. Chapter 4. The Administration of Justice, Part 2. Section 31. Retributive Punishment. We have considered criminal justice in three of its aspects, namely as deterrent, disabling, and reformative, and we have now to deal with it under its fourth and last aspect as retributive. Retributive punishment, in the only sense in which it is admissible in any rational system of administering justice, is that which serves for the satisfaction of that emotion of retributive indignation which in all healthy communities is stirred up by injustice it gratifies the instinct of revenge or retaliation which exists not merely in the individual wronged but also by way of sympathetic extension in the society at large although the system of private revenge has been suppressed the emotions and instincts that lay at the root of it are still extant in human nature, and it is a distinct, though subordinate, function of criminal justice to afford them their legitimate satisfaction. For although in their lawless and unregulated exercise and expression they are full of evil, there is in them none the less an element of good. The emotion of retributive indignation, both in its self-regarding and its sympathetic forms, is even yet the mainspring of the criminal law. It is to the fact that the punishment of the wrongdoer is at the same time the vengeance of the wronged, that the administration of justice owes a great part of its strength and effectiveness. Did we punish criminals merely from an intellectual appreciation of the expediency of doing so, and not because their crimes arouse in us the emotion of anger and the instinct of retribution, the criminal law would be but a feeble instrument. Indignation against injustice is, moreover, one of the chief constituents of the moral sense of the community and positive morality is no less dependent on it than is the law itself. It is good, therefore, that such instincts and emotions should be encouraged and strengthened by their satisfaction, and in civilized societies this satisfaction is possible in any adequate degree only through the criminal justice of the state. There can be little question that at the present day the sentiment of retributive indignation is deficient rather than excessive, and requires stimulation rather than restraint. Unquestionable as have been the benefits of that growth of altruistic sentiment which characterizes modern society, it cannot be denied that in some respects it has taken a perverted course and has interfered unduly with the sterner virtues 
a morbid sentimentality has made of the criminal an object of sympathetic interest rather than of healthy indignation and cain occupies in our regards a place that is better deserved by abel we have too much forgotten that the mental attitude which best becomes us when fitting justice is done upon the evildoer is not pity but solemn exultation the foregoing explanation of retributive punishment as essentially an instrument of vindictive satisfaction is by no means that which receives universal acceptance it is a very widely held opinion that retribution is in itself apart altogether from any deterrent or reformative influences exercised by it a right and reasonable thing and the just reward of iniquity according to this view it is right and proper without regard to ulterior consequences that evil should be returned for evil and that as a man deals with others so should he himself be dealt with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is deemed a plain and self-sufficient rule of natural justice punishment as so regarded is no longer a mere instrument for the attainment of the public welfare but has become an end in itself the purpose of vindictive satisfaction has been eliminated without any substitute having been provided those who accept this view commonly advance retribution to the first place among the various aspects of punishment the others being relegated to subordinate positions this conception of retributive justice still retains a prominent place in popular thought it flourishes also in the writings of theologians and of those imbued with theological modes of thought and even among the philosophers it does not lack advocates kant for example expresses the opinion that punishment cannot rightly be inflicted for the sake of any benefit to be derived from it either by the criminal himself or by society and that the sole and sufficient reason and justification of it lies in the fact that evil has been done by him who suffers it consistently with this view he derives the measure of punishment not from any elaborate considerations as to the amount needed for the repression of crime but from the simple principle of the lex talionis thine eye shall not pity but life shall go for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot no such principle indeed is capable of literal interpretation but subject to metaphorical and symbolical applications it is in kant's view the guiding rule of the ideal scheme of criminal justice it is scarcely needful to observe that from the utilitarian point of view hitherto taken up by us such a conception of retributive punishment is totally inadmissible punishment is in itself an evil and can be justified only as the means of attaining a greater good 
retribution is in itself not a remedy for the mischief of the offence but an aggravation of it the opposite opinion may be regarded as a product of the incomplete transmutation of the conception of revenge into that of punishment it results from a failure to appreciate the rational basis of the instinct of retribution a failure to refer the emotion of retributive indignation to the true source of its rational justification so that retaliation is deemed an end in itself and is regarded as the essential element in the conception of penal justice a more definite form of the idea of purely retributive punishment is that of expiation in this view crime is done away with cancelled blotted out or expiated by the suffering of its appointed penalty to suffer punishment is to pay a debt due to the law that has been violated guilt plus punishment is equal to innocence the wrong it has been said whereby he has transgressed the law of right has incurred a debt justice requires that the debt be paid that the wrong be expiated this is the first object of punishment to make satisfaction to outraged law this conception like the preceding marks a stage in the transformation of revenge into criminal justice until this transformation is complete the remedy of punishment is more or less assimilated to that of redress revenge is the right of the injured person the penalty of wrongdoing is a debt which the offender owes to his victim and when punishment has been endured the debt is paid the liability is extinguished innocence is substituted for guilt and the vinculum juris forged by crime is dissolved the object of true redress is to restore the position demanded by the rule of right to substitute justice for injustice to compel the wrongdoer to restore to the injured person that which is his own a like purpose is assigned to punishment so long as it is imperfectly differentiated from that retributive vengeance which is in some sort of reparation for wrongdoing the fact that in the expiatory theory satisfaction is conceived as due rather to the outraged majesty of the law than to the victim of the offence merely marks a further stage in the refinement and purification of the primitive conception section thirty two civil justice primary and sanctioning rights we proceed now to the consideration of civil justice and to the analysis of the various forms assumed by it it consists as we have seen in the enforcement of rights as opposed to the punishment of wrongs the first distinction to be noticed is that the right so enforced is either a primary or a sanctioning right 
a sanctioning right is one which arises out of the violation of another right all others are primary they are rights which have some other source than wrongs thus my right not to be libeled or assaulted is primary but my right to obtain pecuniary compensation for one who has libeled or assaulted me is sanctioning my right to the fulfillment of a contract made with me is primary but my right to damages for its breach is sanctioning the administration of civil justice therefore falls into two parts according as the right enforced belongs to the one or the other of these two classes sometimes it is impossible for the law to enforce the primary right sometimes it is possible but not expedient if by negligence i destroy another man's property his right to this property is necessarily extinct and no longer enforceable the law therefore gives him in substitution for it a new and sanctioning right to receive from me the pecuniary value of the property that he has lost if on the other hand i break a promise of marriage it is still possible but it is certainly not expedient that the law should specifically enforce the right and compel me to enter into that marriage and it enforces instead a sanctioning right of pecuniary satisfaction a sanctioning right almost invariably consists of a claim to receive money from the wrongdoer and we shall here disregard any other forms as being quite exceptional the enforcement of a primary right may be conveniently termed specific enforcement for the enforcement of a sanctioning right there is no very suitable generic term but we may venture to call it sanctional enforcement examples of specific enforcement are proceedings whereby a defendant is compelled to pay a debt to perform a contract to restore land or chattels wrongfully taken or detained to refrain from committing or continuing a trespass or nuisance or to repay money received by mistake or obtained by fraud in all these cases the right enforced is the primary right itself not a substituted sanctioning right what the law does is to insist on the specific establishment or re-establishment of the actual state of things required by the rule of right not of another state of things which may be regarded as its equivalent or substitute sanctioning rights may be divided into two kinds by reference to the purpose of the law in creating them this purpose is either one the imposition of a pecuniary penalty upon the defendant for the wrong which he has committed or two the provision of a pecuniary compensation for the plaintiff in respect of the damage which he has suffered from the defendant's wrongdoing sanctioning rights therefore are either one rights to exact and receive a pecuniary penalty 
or two rights to exact and receive damages or other pecuniary compensation the first of these kinds is rare in modern english law though it was at one time of considerable importance both in our own and in other legal systems but it is sometimes the case even yet that the law creates and enforces a sanctioning right which has in it no element of compensation to the person injured but is appointed solely as a punishment for the wrongdoer for example a statute might make provision for a pecuniary penalty payable to a common informer that is to say to any one who shall first sue the offender for it such an action is called a penal action as being brought for the recovery of a penalty but it is none the less a purely civil and in no respect a criminal proceeding primarily and immediately it is an action for the enforcement of a right not for the punishment of a wrong it pertains therefore to the civil administration of justice no less than an ordinary action for the recovery of a debt the mere fact that the sanctioning right thus enforced is created by the law for the purpose of punishment does not bring the action within the sphere of criminal justice in order that a proceeding should be criminal it is necessary that its direct and immediate purpose should be punishment it is not enough that its purpose should be the enforcement of a right which has been created by way of a punishment a proceeding is civil if it is one for the enforcement of a right and the source nature and purpose of the right so enforced are irrelevant footnote it is worth notice that an action may be purely penal even though the penalty is payable to the person injured it is enough in such a case that the receipt of the penalty should not be reckoned as or towards the compensation of the recipient a good example of this is the roman actio furti by which the owner of stolen goods could recover twice their value from the thief by way of penalty without prejudice nevertheless to a further action for the recovery of the goods themselves or their value End of footnote. the second form of sanctioning right the right to pecuniary compensation or damages is in modern law by far the more important it may be stated as a general rule that the violation of a private right gives rise in him whose right it is to a sanctioning right to receive compensation for the injury so done to him such compensation must itself be divided into two kinds which may be distinguished as restitution and penal redress in respect of the person injured indeed these two are the same in their nature and operation but in respect of the wrongdoer they are different in restitution the defendant is compelled to give up the pecuniary value of some benefit which he has wrongfully obtained at the expense of the plaintiff as when he who has wrongfully taken or detained another's goods is made to pay him the pecuniary value of them 
or when he who has wrongfully enriched himself at another's expense is compelled to account to him for all money so obtained penal redress on the other hand is a much more common and important form of legal remedy than mere restitution the law is seldom content to deal with a wrongdoer by merely compelling him to restore all benefits which he has derived from his wrong it commonly goes further and compels him to pay the amount of the plaintiff's loss and this may far exceed the profit if any which he has himself received it is clear that compensation of this kind has a double aspect and nature from the point of view of the plaintiff it is compensation and nothing more but from that of the defendant it is a penalty imposed upon him for his wrongdoing the compensation of the plaintiff is in such cases the instrument which the law uses for the punishment of the defendant and because of this double aspect we call it penal redress thus if i burn down my neighbor's house by negligence i must pay him the value of it the wrong is then undone with respect to him indeed for he is put in as good a position as if it had not been committed formerly he had a house and now he has the worth of it but the wrong is not undone with respect to me for i am the poorer by the value of the house and to this extent i have been punished for my negligence section thirty three a table of legal remedies the result of the foregoing analysis of the various forms assumed by the administration of justice civil and criminal may be exhibited in a tabular form as follows legal proceedings branch off into criminal proceedings or the punishment of wrongs for example imprisonment for theft number five and civil proceedings or the enforcement of rights the enforcement of rights branches off into specific and sanctional specific number one is enforcement of a primary right for example payment of a debt or return of property detained sanctional enforcement is divided into compensation and penalty penalty number four is for example action by informer for statutory penalty compensation is divided into restitution number two for example return of profit unlawfully made and penal redress number three is payment for loss unlawfully inflicted section thirty four penal and remedial proceedings it will be noticed that in the foregoing table legal proceedings have been divided into five distinct classes namely one actions for specific enforcement two actions for restitution three actions for penal redress four penal actions and five criminal prosecutions it must now be observed that the last three of these contain a common element which is absent from the others namely the idea of punishment in all these three forms of procedure the ultimate purpose of the law 
is in whole or in part the punishment of the defendant. This is equally so whether he is imprisoned or compelled to pay a pecuniary penalty to a common informer, or is held liable in damages to the person injured by him. All these proceedings, therefore, may be classed together as penal, and as the sources of penal liability. The other forms, namely specific enforcement and restitution, contain no such penal element. The idea of punishment is entirely foreign to them, and they may be classed together as remedial, and as the sources of remedial liability. From the point of view of legal theory, this distinction between penal and remedial liability is, as we shall see, of even greater importance than that between criminal and civil liability. It will be noted that all criminal proceedings are at the same time penal, but that the converse is not true. Some civil proceedings, being penal, while others are merely remedial. It may be objected that this explanation fails to distinguish between penal liability and criminal, inasmuch as punishment is stated to be the essential element in each. The answer to this objection is that we must distinguish between the ulterior and the immediate purposes of the law. Proceedings are classed as criminal or civil in respect of their immediate aim. They are distinguished as penal or remedial in respect of their entire purpose, remote as well as immediate. One way of punishing a wrongdoer is to impose some new obligation upon him and to enforce the fulfillment of it. He may be compelled to pay a penalty or damages. Whenever this course is adopted, the immediate design of the law is the enforcement of the right to the penalty or damage. But its ulterior design is the punishment of the wrong out of which this right arose. In respect of the former, the proceedings are civil, not criminal, while in respect of the latter they are penal, not remedial. Penal proceedings, therefore, may be defined as those in which the object of the law, immediate or ulterior, is or includes the punishment of the defendant. All others are remedial, the purpose of the law being nothing more than the enforcement of the plaintiff's right, and the idea of punishment being irrelevant and inapplicable. Section 35. Secondary Functions of Courts of Law Hitherto we have confined our attention to the administration of justice, in the narrowest and most proper sense of the term. In this sense it means, as we have seen, the application by the state of the sanction of physical force to the rules of justice. It is the forcible defense of rights and suppression of wrongs. The administration of justice, properly so called, therefore, involves in every case two parties, the plaintiff and the defendant, a right claimed or a wrong complained of by the former as against the latter, 
a judgment in favor of the one or the other, and execution of this judgment by the power of the state, if need be. We have now to notice that the administration of justice, in a wider sense, includes all the functions of courts of justice, whether they conform to the foregoing type or not. It is to administer justice in the strict sense that the tribunals of the state are established, and it is by reference to this essential purpose that they must be defined. But when once established, they are found to be useful instruments by virtue of their constitution, procedure, authority, or special knowledge for the fulfillment of other more or less analogous functions. To these secondary and non-essential activities of the courts, no less than to their primary and essential functions, the term administration of justice has been extended. They are miscellaneous and indeterminate in character and number, and tend to increase with the advancing complexity of modern civilization. They fall chiefly into four groups. 1. Petitions of Right The courts of law exercise, in the first place, the function of adjudicating upon claims made by subjects against the state itself. If a subject claims that a debt is due to him from the crown, or that the crown has broken a contract with him, or wrongfully detains his property, he is at liberty to take proceedings by way of petition of right in a court of law for the determination of his rights in the matter. The petition is addressed to the crown itself, but is referred for consideration to the courts of justice, and these courts will investigate the claim in due form of law, and pronounce in favor of the petitioner or of the crown, just as in an action between two private persons. But this is not the administration of justice properly so called, for the essential element of coercive force is lacking. The state is the judge in its own cause, and cannot exercise constraint against itself. Nevertheless, in the wider sense, the administration of justice includes the proceedings in a petition of right, no less than a criminal prosecution or an action for debt or damages against a private individual. 2. Declarations of Right The second form of judicial action which does not conform to the essential type is that which results not in any kind of coercive judgment, but merely in a declaration of right. A litigant may claim the assistance of a court of law not because his rights have been violated, but because they are uncertain. What he desires may not need any remedy against an adversary for the violation of a right, but an authoritative declaration that the right exists. Such a declaration may be the ground of subsequent proceedings, in which the right having been violated receives enforcement, but in the meantime there is no enforcement nor any claim to it. Examples of declaratory proceedings are declarations of legitimacy, declarations of nullity of marriage, advice to trustees or executors as to their legal powers and duties, 
and the authoritative interpretation of wills. 3. Administrations. A third form of secondary judicial action includes all those cases in which courts of justice undertake the management and distribution of property. Examples are the administration of a trust, the liquidation of a company by the court, and the realization and distribution of an insolvent estate. 4. Titles of Right The fourth and last form include all those cases in which judicial decree are employed as the means of creating, transferring, or extinguishing rights. Instances are a decree of divorce or judicial separation, an adjudication of bankruptcy, an order of discharge in bankruptcy, a decree of foreclosure against a mortgager, an order appointing or removing trustees, a grant of letters of administration, and vesting or charging orders. In all these cases, the judgment or decree operates not as the remedy of a wrong, but as the title of a right. These secondary forms of judicial action are to be classed under the head of the civil administration of justice. Here, as in its other uses, the term civil is merely residuary. Civil justice is all that is not criminal. We have defined the law as consisting of the rules observed in the administration of justice. We have now seen that the latter term is used in a double sense, and the question therefore arises whether it is the strict or the wide sense that is to be adopted in our definition of the law. There can be no doubt, however, that logic admits, and convenience requires, the adoption of the wider application. We must recognize as law the sum total of the rules that are applied by courts of justice in the exercise of any of their functions, whether these are primary and essential, or secondary and accidental. The principles in accordance with which the courts determine a petition of right, decree a divorce, or grant letters of administration, are as truly legal principles as those which govern an action of debt or a suit for specific performance. Summary. The administration of justice by the state, a permanent necessity. The origin of the administration of justice. Justice as criminal, the punishment of wrongs. Justice as civil, the enforcement of rights. Crimes are not necessarily public wrongs. Purposes of punishment. Deterrent, preventive, reformative, retributive. Civil justice branches into enforcement of primary rights, a specific enforcement, and into enforcement of sanctioning rights, sanctional enforcement. Sanctional enforcement branches into Penalty and compensation. Compensation can be either restitution or penal redress. Justice can be either remedial, which is independent of the idea of punishment 
and always civil, or justice can be penal, involving the idea of punishment, and can be either civil or criminal. Subsidiary functions of courts of justice. Petitions of right, declarations of right, administration of property, creation, transfer, and extinction of rights. End of section 7.